Greetings to everyone, wherever you're from this morning. We're so glad that you joined us today. Whether live, in-house, we are a full house. We are at capacity, where basically we, we can't really uh, have too many more people come in through the doors. Our downstairs is virtually full. We have a few more kids' spots open, but beyond that... Um, in our current reality, it's a full house inside, which is awesome. And I could hear it this morning, you guys all singing. It was just amazing to hear your voices sing along uh, with Jacob, uh, the guest worship leader in Orleans this week. Uh, just absolutely beautiful uh, in that regard. So whether you're from Long Sioux, Lancaster, Waterloo, or Hawkesbury, wherever you came from, Orleans, wherever you came from today, we're so glad that you chose to be with us in the house today. Um, we are concluding our series on God's presence with us. We've been going through a series this year called Build Your House, or we are going through a series called Build Your House. And uh, over the next number of months, we're going to look at different concepts or ideas um, about building the house and how it relates to us and God. And the first part has been about God's presence with us. And we've looked predominantly at Nehemiah, Ezra, and uh, Zerubbabel and rebuilding the walls, rebuilding the temple, and, and, and rebuilding Torah, or the first five books of the Bible, into the life of Israel. And any parallels that we can draw from that for our lives today. And we've taken our series uh, for, this, for this year from the verse, Psalm 127.1, where it says, Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. And so we really want that to be the heart of who we are here at Life Center this year, that as we build as we look to build into the future here in Cornwall, into the future of our community here, we want to look at it from that perspective that we don't want to labor in vain. And so we want God to build the house and we want God to watch over this city so that our watching over this city and our pouring our hearts into the city isn't in vain because we are in lockstep with God. So last week, we looked at the importance of knowing the right fight, knowing which fight to engage in and how to engage in that fight. This week, our focus is going to switch to whose power we are fighting with. And we're going to switch and we're actually going to look at the life of Moses uh, and how he wrestled out with those fights and, uh, and, and fought the battles and the burdens that God put on his heart. So let's pray before we dive any further. God, we just thank you so much for your presence. We thank you that uh, your desire is to, is to know us, to be in relationship with people. You aren't a, a distant and foreign God that just demands awe and respect. Rather, you are a personal and up-close God who demands and asks and longs for relationship. And in that relationship, we understand and um, grow to know how amazing you are and worship you nonetheless. And so, God, may you continue to draw us into relationship with you. May your presence be what we seek after. And we pray this in your name. Amen. All right. 
So Moses, we're looking at Moses, and if you're not familiar with who Moses is, Moses is a Israelite leader uh, at the beginning of Israel's uh, exodus from Egypt. Uh, but his story is a long story and a mixed story in the middle of that. And so where we're picking up our story to, to draw some, some uh, lessons for us today is when Moses had returned from meeting with God on top of a mountain, and God was giving him the commands and the rules that Israel was supposed to follow. Most uh, of us would remember that moment or know those moments from the, the Ten Commandments, right? Everybody, whether you've got a, a deep face, a faith or whether it's more of a, you know, you're, you're learning and growing in how you understand God, can have some idea of the idea of the Ten Commandments of those stone tablets of the, you know, thou shalt not rules. And so he's coming down the mountain with those, uh, meeting, meeting with God to get those. And as he comes down, he's been away for a while, like a long while, like a month he's been gone. And as he's, as he's been gone, all the people of Israel, while he was missing, just assumed that he was dead and gone. He had like whatever, fallen, you know, he went he went rock climbing up a mountain without any equipment as if he was going to survive that. He's been, he's been lost to us. And so they ask his brother, Aaron, to kind of lead them. And the leadership that they, they ask of him is really just a, let us do whatever we're familiar with from back in Egypt. Let us go back to the ways that we were comfortable with back in Egypt. And so Aaron just like, let's do it. Let's go for it. Let's keep you happy. Last thing I want is while Moses is gone for you to all get in an uproar and overthrow my leadership. So he just does whatever they want. And so it's a big party scene. Everything's going crazy. They make golden calf for them all to worship and have parties with and everything. And so Moses is coming down the mountain because God said, you better get down there because it's all chaos. And as, as he's going down, he witnesses the children of Israel, the people of Israel, worshiping this created calf, this God they made uh, to worship. And he loses it. He absolutely loses it. And now as a father, as a parent, uh, I, I know exactly how it, he must have felt in that moment. And if you've been a parent, you probably know too. Right When you've been away from home or wherever and you've entrusted everything to go smoothly at home, everything to go perfect, and you come home and you can see the disaster from a mile away, right? The room that was supposed to be nice and clean looks like chaos or something has gone terribly wrong. And you're there, and in your righteous anger, you just start giving it to them. How could you? You knew better than this. And you just, you give it to them, right? How many of you have been there? I'm sure you have. I know I have where I come in there, and you're just like white hot with correction, right? Where you're just like, listen, this is the way it's going to be. Moses is like that. So much so, this is how much he's like. He, and this is where I think we all can, we can all like understand. He took those nice stone tablets that he had watched God carve out of rock and then write with his invisible finger or whatever the, the commands on. So, you know, they're kind of special. You know, they're not, you know, it's not like he just picked up the Seaway News and you go like, I can get this anywhere. He, he had the Ten Commandments that God had given him on, uh, on stone tablets and he takes them and he smashes them on the ground. Now, 
How many people can admit to throwing something down on the ground in their anger, right? Where you're like, are you serious? And you throw it down or you kick something to show how upset you really are, right? That's really the point of it is to say, you know, my voice in a nice calm way is not going to describe the emotions that I'm feeling to you right now. And so I need to throw this down in order to, you know, make sure you're clear that I'm upset, right? So he does so. And then he, he takes it one step further. That golden calf that they were all worshiping, he grinds it up into a, a powder and he puts it in the water and he makes them drink it. Now, as a parent, again, I know this is not great parenting skills. But how many of you have been tempted to be like, oh, yeah, you wanted to bake a best in the kitchen. Oh, you wanted to decide to bake, did you? And you put in all these crazy ingredients and made something special to, di- to eat, did you? Okay, well, you're going to eat it now. You wanted to make it? Here it is. Eat it. Let's go. There's your dinner. Am I alone in this? Am I alone? In- you think so? Okay. All right. Maybe this is like a referendum on my parenting skills, apparently. <laughs> They're free-range kids, you know, like you just grow and, you know, discover. That's what we <laughs> But there's that feeling of like, oh, you did that, did you? Well, now you're going to have to live with those consequences. We all can be familiar with that feeling, right? Where when somebody does harm to us or does something we're not happy with, we're more than happy to let them deal with the consequences of their actions. And we're actually, you know, we'll join in to make sure that they experience the consequence of their actions. That's exactly what uh, Moses entered into in that moment. That moment of like, I cannot believe you've done this, and now you're going to have to pay for it. And like most parents, when he calms down, takes a breath, realizes this is probably not the most, most beneficial way in dealing with them. And even though his, his anger was righteous, they were worshiping a golden statue instead of the living God that had just taken them out of the land of Egypt through signs and wonders. They had seen amazing things at the hand of God. He had been leading them by a pillar of fire by night and cloud by day. He had caused a a seed apart so they could walk across. And besides all that, here they are worshiping a golden statue. And so his his anger was like, it was right to be angry that they had chosen so quickly to turn from God. And yeah, I think... How hard, how easy is it for us to do that, isn't it, in our hearts sometimes? We may not pull out a a gold statue and and decide to worship it instead of God. But how quickly does sometimes our our desire to move forward in our, our trust switch from God to things? When all of a sudden financial instability comes, we start looking at our our RSPs or our investment portfolio to make sure that it's maybe good enough for our, you know, future rather than trust that God's going to take care of us. We start to look at maybe how do I get another job or find some, find some cash somehow in order to make things work rather than trust God. Or if it's a relationship scenario and we look to a different relationship rather than the one we're in because The one we're in seems too hard. And we look outside to other things rather than looking to God. I think we can find ourselves probably more 
closely identified with the Israelites than Moses most times, if we're honest. But Moses, in that moment, after his anger subsides a little bit, he intercedes before God on behalf of the children of Israel. And in, during that moment, because God was going to send them out on their own, he's like, you really, you want to do this? Fine. You want a golden calf? Fine. You go. I'm staying back because I can't be in your presence when you're like this. I can't be with you. I'm the one true holy God, and I will not exist in this, like, let's worship golden calves, you know, crazy party stuff. I can't do that. And so he was about to send them off on their own, and Moses intercedes. And he says this. We read it in Exodus 33:15. He says, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. They'd been camped at the side of a mountain where he had been meeting with God. And he's like, if you're not coming with us, if you're staying on the mountain and sending us away, don't send us anywhere. Because Moses knows when God isn't leading, both he and the people are capable of terrible things. And they're unrecognizable from any other nation around them. We read in the next verse in Exodus 33, 16, it says this, For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in our going, you go, you're going with us, so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? You see, when God's presence is with them, he becomes their distinction. He is the reason they are who they are and who we are who we are. In this moment, Moses is following God while he is leading the children of Israel. He's following while leading. He's depending while being depended upon. Just like Nehemiah, this is the maturation of a burden that he was blessed with. This is him living it out in a way that honors God and shows that he has learned some lessons. Because the fuller story of Moses isn't quite so glowing. It, doesn't, it isn't just love a, a loving father who, you know, has a stern rebuke for his, his children and then, you know, counts to ten and deals with them nicely. It's, it's bigger than that. You see, Moses... Moses was a child born in captivity. He was born in Egypt. And while he was favored to have escaped death and then live in the palace of Pharaoh, it set him up for a very interesting life because he was blessed with a, a burden. He was blessed with a burden for Israel, but he was having to deal with it and try to figure out how to make that work. And yet, he had to do so while he was still learning about who God was in his life. And we can see in a moment, a moment where his, his burden overboils in his life. We see this in Exodus 2, 1, 11 to 15. And it says this, One day, when Moses had grown up in Egypt... He went out to his people because he'd been living mostly amongst the Egyptians in the palace. 
And he went out to his people and looked on their burdens. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, which is uh, another word they used for Israelite, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. So he killed him and buried him in the sand. And when he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews, or Israelites, were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? And he answered, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known. And when Pharaoh did hear of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian. And he sat down by a well. Moses was blessed with a burden. The injustice of his people at the hands of the Egyptians. That's what he's living in in that moment. He, he feels that. And yet he fears, Mo, he fears Pharaoh. He, he, he's in the palace, but he's not, he's not sitting there as like the next in line to be to be a pharaoh or anything like that. But he is living in luxury. He does have a privileged life. He knows what the Egyptians, though, are doing to the children of Israel is wrong because his mother would have taught him who they were and who, how they were distinct from the, the Egyptians. But he doesn't know God. He knows of God, but he has yet to embrace him and know him personally. Moses was likely living a syncretic lifestyle, holding the values of Egypt, the luxury of Egypt, the affluence of Egypt in one part of his life while holding his Israeli roots at the same time, living in luxury and yet feeling a connection with an enslaved and burdened people. And the conflict of all that was boiling over inside of him. The burden that was a God-given burden overboils in his attempt to do things in his own strength. And the church can sometimes be lured into that same trap, allowing the influence of our culture to, dis to dull our distinction. And then when we do take a stand, it's conflicted and it feels challenged, challenging to try and create a black and white scenario, a right and wrong verdict of the situation because who we are has blended so much with the culture around us. And so for Moses at this point, this is what it is for Moses. There are only two sides. There is the Egyptians and the children of Israel. And that's it. That's all. But God's going to change that for him. See, the burden that he had was correct. The injustice that was happening to Israel was wrong. But his actions are wrong, and is just as equally unjust in that situation. And so for the next 40 years of Moses' life, as he escapes Pharaoh at that time, God enrolls Moses in this school of formation where there's not simply two sides because God's presence changes everything. See, in fact, God's very introduction to Moses, where God reveals himself as I am, has this moment in it that, that shows that to us. In Exodus 3, 4 to 6, we read this. 
When the Lord saw that he had turned aside to see, and that there was a burning bush, a bush that was on fire, and yet it wasn't being fully consumed and burned down to ash. It was just continually burning as if it, was, it couldn't be consumed. And so he, he saw it, and he had turned aside to see it. And God called him out of the bush. Uh, so God's voice from inside the bush says, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. And then he said, do not come near. Take off Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Is there music playing? All right, we're good. I was like, I had a theme song for my message. (laughs) I'm not sure it was quite the right theme, but it it was still a theme going on there. All right, we'll, we'll back in. Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. Then watch what God says next. The Lord said, I've surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I've heard their cry. Just know that when you're going through things, God sees the affliction and hears the cry. Hears the cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and he knows ours. I have come down to deliver them, and he will be our deliverer, out of the hands of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. God has seen their affliction. He's heard their cry. He knows their sufferings. There is a similar burden we see in Moses that was, he was blessed with 40 years prior. God's burden that he has for his people is the same one that Moses had, to see the people free. But the difference is God is going to deliver them out of Egypt and bring them up, something that Moses could not do in his own strength. When Moses, in his own strength, tried to do something, all he could do was bring death. All he could do was destroy one to try and equalize the playing field. There was no ability to bring up and bring out. But with God's presence, everything would be different. God's presence shows that he cares about their present condition and their future destination. Where Moses and his immature burden could only do something about a present condition, And even then, do so with injustice, not justice. God will do something great. A moment ago, we spoke of seeing things through two sides, how God's presence changes everything, that there's another perspective. When it comes to our lives today, as we kind of transition here to take a moment just to put it into our lives, There's an interesting book that Chris uh, Bale wrote called Breaking the Social Media Prism, How to Make Our Platforms uh, Less Polarizing. It's the name of the book he wrote. And in the book, he contends that social media drives to extremism, mutes moderate voices. 
It magnifies the voices of the extremes, and it stifles and mutes the voices of the majority in the middle. And if you're, if you're on social media at all, I'm sure that you can see this. How voices and, and things that would show up on Facebook feeds or on Instagram or Twitter or wherever you'd go, or just even the news, if you, if you look at the news on, uh, on your phone or on device, you'll see all the stories, all the opinions are extreme. Extreme right, extreme left, extreme north, south, whichever direction it is, it's extreme. And all the moderate voices, all the people in the middle that are going like, we don't need to go that far or that far. We can find, you know, something in the middle that make you never hear those voices. Because social media it will go one way or the other. It'll swing from one side to the other. It never looks to the middle voice. It never looks to a different way. Where we once gained a sense of identity from God, family, and neighbors, now our culture gains formative feedback by looking inward to ourselves and then outward to those who affirm or agree with us. Because that's all that's happening online is, what do you believe? Do you agree with what I'm posting? Do you not agree? Because that, that pits you one side or the other. It becomes a, a, an Israelites versus uh, Egyptian scenario. And that's all that we live in is this one side or the other. Anyone who doesn't immediately uh, affirm our stance becomes the opposition and an enemy. Timothy Keller, he writes it like this. He said, so social media is not primarily a place of public discussion of ideas. The ideas are ways to define oneself and signal belonging to a group, as well as to assign identities to others by associating them with groups you oppose. This is the reason that social media has perfected the art of bad faith readings, interpreting a person's words in the most uncharitable sense possible. And there is no effort to understand the argument in its strongest form and respond to it. Rather, the goal is to associate the thinker with shameful outgroups. Isn't that true? We use social media. We use all these things to identify who we are, to signal which group we belong to, and to then uh, assign other people into groups. Now, uh, to make it a little bit more personal, maybe you're like, I'm not on social media all that much. Have, uh, I would assume most people have sent a text message in the, in the house or something. Most. Not everybody, I'm sure. Not everybody has is all savvy up on using their thumbs to send messages. But most of us have sent some text messages. And most of us would say they would know when they've sent a text message that sometimes the message gets misinterpreted, doesn't it? Because you can't read emotion into it. You don't know what they're saying. One of the rules I, I made for myself very early in uh, my marriage with, with Ingrid was that I was never going to have important discussions on, on text, by text, because you have no idea how the other person is interpreting the information and responding. You get to read all the emotion you want into their response. You get to choose when they say, fine. What does that mean? What does fine mean? Is, was that a fine where it was like, 
fine. Or was that a fine? Which one was it? I don't know. I can't read it in the text. And I don't know what emoji says, you know, I'm okay, it's okay, fine, or whatever. I don't know. And so we, I made a clear distinction. If we're going to have a discussion and it's going to be emotional, it has to be face-to-face so we can work things out. But what social media does for the majority of our society and what we get drawn into, how we in our syncretism of blending in with our culture... Just like the Israelites did with the Egyptian culture, when we dive into that, we start to identify each other through the same ways. And we use social media to do that, where we don't discuss ideas, we just yell ideas at each other. And that's how we end up living our lives and even interacting with each other as, as, as humans. And as a church, we have to be so careful not to allow that to become our way of discourse social media, then to extend our social interactions because all of our social interactions are fed or informed by our social media use. You may be sitting there going, you know, well, I I don't post any of that stuff online. You'll never see me putting a comment in. Well, I'm coming after you too because just because you don't post, you may be wise enough to not post, but you're not wise enough sometimes to not talk. And you may not be posting stuff online, but you're sure willing to talk to people about those same opinions that were only informed by reading all those posts. And that doesn't make it any better. I never post online. If you look at my social media feed, it's like once a year, hi, and then nothing for another year. Or it's an obligatory picture of my family at Christmas and then nothing until Thanksgiving. I don't post a lot. But that doesn't mean I don't have a lot of ideas. And it doesn't mean I can't sit around and have a million discussions with all of you, giving you all my brilliant ideas of how to save our society. But that doesn't make me right. And it doesn't make you right. So we need to be careful about how we choose to engage our culture. We need to be careful of how we take the burdens God's given us and then look to alleviate those burdens in our society. Freedom is an amazing gift that God's given us in Canada. And we need to defend our freedom, stand up for our freedom. We do. We absolutely do. But how do we do that? How do we stand for freedom, for rights, for your right to choose? How do we stand in a way that honors both God and others? That is is a path that's neither Israel or Egypt. That's a path that can only move forward in the presence of God. With God's presence. If God does not lead, do not send us. Make it personal for yourself. If God is not going with you out the door of your house, don't go. If God's not going with you when your thumbs go on to a comment section on a website or something, if God's presence isn't going with you, take your thumbs off the comment bar. Do not go without God's presence. Bill, in his book, goes on to say that an issue with social media is not in the sharing of ideas, but it's how becoming a place of identity creation May that we not, we not become identity creators in that way. 
The technology may be new, but this type of formation is old as the story of Moses we are sharing today. Because like I said, he had the right burden, but the source of his initial action isn't righteousness. Remember last week, if you were with us, we defined righteousness as fulfilling the obligation of relationship between us and God. When we fulfill that obligation well between us and God, then we stand righteous before him. Injustice can create nothing other than a growing injustice. Moses had to learn to see Egypt, Pharaoh, and the children of Israel in himself by looking to God as the great I am. And this starts with that profound understanding. Wherever God is, the same ground, the common ground, becomes different. It becomes holy. Think about it. There's just a a regular bush. There's nothing special about that bush, except when God's presence shows up, that common ground becomes holy ground. There's a different posture required for us to see the world the way Jesus sees the world. Like Ezra and Nehemiah and Zerubbabel or Moses, we can have the right burden but lack God's presence. And this is why for 40 or so years, we see the same imperfect Moses. 40 years later from that moment when he had killed an Egyptian and then got caught and had to escape, we see the same Moses. And he's still flawed. He's not perfect. But we see a profoundly different Moses who has learned one thing. If your presence will not go with me, do not bring me up from here. It's not my way. It's not your way or the highway. There's not that either or choice for us. There is a third way, God's way. This morning, remember, the gift of a burden still requires God's presence. And God's presence shifts our perspective from common to holy. And his holiness then empowers righteousness and justice to flow. And that's usually a step where we we get caught. God's presence shifts our perspective from common to holy. And his holiness has to be the source of our righteousness and justice. And when his justice flows, it's not just our circumstance that change, but our destination. So today, if you're here and the burden you feel, if it feels heavy, then maybe you've been carrying that burden on your own. Maybe you've been standing on common ground. Maybe you need to return to that holy ground, to his presence. His yoke is easy and his burden is light. We see that in Matthew 11.30. Why? Because of his presence. Church, family, loved ones, how we need to be people who hunger and thirst for the presence of God before we go anywhere or do anything. So this morning, you've all been given your communion elements. I don't know we've done a lot of communion over the last number of weeks, which I absolutely love as it speaks to our 
our group identity in who we find ourselves with and where we can't get away from, the foot of the cross and what God has done for us. And so as you sit there this morning, if you want to prepare your elements, because like we do before, we'll do them both at the same time so we uh, only have to remove our masks the one time. But this morning, as we reflect on who Jesus is and what he's done for us, we want to reflect on this. We want to reflect on the burdens that God gives us, the gifts that God's given us, the callings that he's given us, and the maturity that he's called us to live those things out in. And so I'd ask us this morning to do this, to take a moment and just reflect on those things. What burden has God given you? And you may be wondering, I don't know if God has given me a burden. Just think of it this way. Whatever makes you angry or brings you joy or makes you cry. If those things, if if those things in your life, if something triggers you to make you angry about it, to cause you to have tears about it, or brings joy when you see something resolved, that's probably a burden that God's given you. Some people can see something on TV, can see like a child sponsorship commercial on TV, and it means nothing to them. And it's not that they're cold-hearted or like callous towards it. It's just not a burden they have. And other people, they have to like hide their phone from going and, and like sponsoring another child or something like that because the burden is so real. And they cry every single time they see one of those scenarios. That's a burden that somebody, that God's given. So just reflect on the burdens that God has given you. And now reflect on the gifts that God's given you, natural and supernatural, the calling that he's given you, and the maturity that he's asked you to live out. How have you done that? Have you responded to the burdens that God's placed on your hearts? Have you responded more like young Moses or older Moses? Have you said, God, I'm not doing any of this without your presence? Or have you ran ahead and tried to solve injustice on your own? This morning, what we want to do is just this, to say, God, any way that we are miscalculating or misinterpreting how this burden is supposed to be lived out, God, we ask for your forgiveness. God, when it comes to how we interact in social media or when it comes to controversial issues within our culture, God, any time that we have, we have tried to step into those moments without your presence, and done more harm than good, we ask for your repentance, God. We ask for your, your forgiveness. God, any time that we have stepped into those situations, God, and it has been in our own strength that we've tried to do things rather than yours, again, we ask for your forgiveness. Because, God, we don't want to go anywhere or do anything without your presence. 